There are many formats for competitions and larger international competitions usually run over one or two weeks. Smaller national or local competitions have the luxury of being more flexible since competitors don't have to travel quite so far to attend. The North California League uses a completely flexible approach and has been going from strength to strength since it was first founded over a decade ago. Jugdeep or Jug Argawal is in charge of the organization of the competition series. He's been working on reducing the infrastructure required to run the competition and this has had several advantages, which he will outline for us in the next half an hour. Jug calls the league cross-country flying with a mission. So the league isn't just about having a competition. In a country where people can live as geographically dispersed as the USA, the league provides a valuable mechanism for building and consolidating the paragliding community providing an opportunity to meet and fly cross-country together in a safe way with retreats provided. Because the League is so successful, Jug and I decided to record a podcast about it in the hope that it's useful for other potential competition organisers and potential competitors. Jug has been flying for 18 years. He is British but learnt to fly in New Zealand and got 30 hours flying time in his first three years. He then moved to Germany and got plenty of alpine flying. A couple of years in the UK saw him win the Derbyshire Soaring Club's XC League. He moved to the USA 11 years ago and has been running the NorCal League for 10 years. So I run these competitions based out of Northern California uh, and we visit the local flying sites. And those local flying sites are a three to four hour drive from, let's say, San Francisco. And they're an informal series of competitions held every month from March through to October, with uh, one weekend a month being designated each month from March through to October. Uh, and the sites, we kind of swap between the sites that are accessible, and, and if the weather looks bad, we'll quickly change sites or change the, the dates. So okay, so how many people roughly take part? Well, the start of the season, somewhere between 30 to 50 and then it tapers off during the middle of the season and, and the end. And then I do a bigger kind of competition that I, I advertise heavily into the Owens Valley. And that will attract somewhere between 40 to 60 pilots. And in terms of percentage of pilots, you know, is that a big percentage of your local flying community? The events are open to hang gliders and paraglider pilots. But I'm, I think I've only had one hang glider pilot turn up in the last 10 years. At one mm -hmm. one task. So when you look at the paraglider pilots, uh, I think my catchment in the Bay Area is probably around 500. So I'm probably getting at best 10% of that, at worst 5% of that population. I think that's a really high percentage, actually. Oh, wow. I think that's a really, really good turnout. Of course, there are, there are lots of pilots in the local area who are very happy at the local slope-soaring coastal site who never really want to go inland and battle with thermals. And I assume also that there's quite a few people who are just not cross-country pilots. Yeah, there are pilots who are just happy just to bimble around at a thermal site. I'm actually making a big change this year in making the tasks a lot less aggressive. So things that are under 20 kilometres to attract even lower air time and more beginner style pilots because I think the barrier that I have might be just a little bit too high to suit everyone. Okay so what's the aim of the competition then? I mean is it 
to improve people's skills or is it to to be a competition competition to learn you know to teach people about how to compete so the main aim is to help pilots fly further than they would do on their own by flying competition type tasks and in doing so it develops camaraderie amongst pilots which i think is great to prevent attrition of pilots teaching cross-country skills in an informal basis just by following other pilots who might be better more in tune and it's also you know you can throw in the competition aspect of for people who want to race around a task uh, and that's really suited for the upper echelon pilots so i see that we address lots of things it's the camaraderie it's the teaching competition and then the racing stuff uh, in preparation for bigger competitions okay so i mean you you do sort of GPS downloads and scoring and everything. Yeah, so these are this is what you um, what you get from some of the much larger competitions where they're all GPS driven. So there are tasks uh, with start times. People follow task, and then at the end of the task, they, uh, there'll be downloads. And part of what I've been trying to do is reduce workload and get pilots to actually email their track logs over. So I don't have to sit in a score room and download tracks. You're favoured by the weather because California is famous for, for nice weather. So you must have quite a good chance of having a weekend, a taskable weekend every month. Or do you have a lot of problems with the weather? No. So um, I try and aim for 18 tasks a year uh, over the season. And typically I'll lose maybe two tasks. So I think last year I had 15, 15 scored tasks out of 18, which, which is pretty good. And you're right, we're, we're very, very lucky in California, especially where we are here, is that almost every weekend you want to fly, you can fly. Occasionally we'll get, we'll get a front coming through and it'll dampen things down and we can't fly. But if that happens, I, I push the whole thing over to a, a following weekend and the anticipation will fly that following weekend. And it really means that we can get a number of tasks in every year. And how does it score overall then? Is it over all the tasks? So if we imagine we have 18 tasks in a year, your final score is based upon only half of the tasks that have been flown. So if you fly 18 tasks, you throw away half of your tasks and you keep your best half. If you fly 10 tasks, you can only throw away one. And the reason for that is it means that Pilots who've got families who can't come out every weekend that there's a league meet, they're not going to be discriminated against. And those who can only come out for one day at a time, they're not going to be discriminated against. So they still have a reasonable chance of, of doing well and, and you know maybe walking away with a trophy. So how does payment for the comp work? Do you pay for all the rounds or just pay for when you fly? Certainly if there's a task, you pay. If there's no task, there's no fee. I always get disappointed at the really large competitions where you go for a whole week and you get two tasks in and, and in the US that's that's three or four hundred dollars. And it would be great if you didn't have to pay when, when the weather was crap. It sounds like really good value for money. Uh, I'd like to think that, that the league is good value for money. I mean the costs vary between thirty to forty dollars a day, depending upon which sites that we fly. And and that includes, you know, right up to launch retrieve from wherever, and, and full GPS scoring. Um, when I compare it to some of the other competitions in the US, which are 400 or 350 to $500, then, yeah, it is significantly cheaper. And, and the other advantage with it is because they're on weekends, 
if the weather becomes bad for the weekend, we can push it on to another weekend or cancel it completely, and pilots haven't paid a penny. So it really is, you know, you only pay if, if it's taskable. I think it is good value for money, and the flexibility is just wonderful for ensuring, you know, you get to fly. The whole organization team is how many? One. It's me. Okay. So, so yeah, so you've got, you're pretty flexible as well then. Yeah, and... Uh, and, and that's, you know, I've toyed with the idea of having more people involved in the organization of it. But in doing so, I realize I start to reduce flexibility with changing things or changing rules or whatever. So for me, I, I, I kind of run the whole show on my own. And, and it's, it's actually not too much of a burden. Talk me through then what it involves from you as the competition organizer. So my website, which is com has everything on it that pilots need to know. It'll have the repeater stations, it'll have the waypoints, it'll have tutorials on how to fly some of the tasks, just everything there. And then I have a a Yahoo group where I send out details for each weekend of where we're going to go and and what meeting points and times and stuff like that. And then it's just a question of meeting up. I expect all pilots have downloaded waypoints onto their instruments, so I don't have to worry about that. So we'll meet up, for example, at 9.30. I have a printout sheet of everyone's details and then just tick off pilots who are turning up for the day. Uh, So then set a task. Pilots fly. They land. I have a retrieve system, and they they work using the retrieve drivers. They come back. And they they check themselves back in, and around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I check to see who's not out there and just start calling to find out where where pilots are. And the whole check-in, check-out is is great. It means I don't have to worry too much about things. And and also I've made spot mandatory for all pilots for uh, for last year, when I'm going to continue for this year. And the neat thing with that is that if I'm in a Wi-Fi, I can see where everyone is on a single page, so I can keep track of pilots. Because I also fly the tasks myself. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> Do you, you know, does it mean that you have to be ground-based or can you actually fly them? You know, what you've already told me about the organisation, I don't see why you wouldn't, couldn't be flying in them if everybody's being tracked on spot. And it sounds great. Yeah, and, and then the other thing I do is I organise people into small groups. I get them to organise themselves into small groups called buddy groups. And the buddy groups are meant to be where pilots keep track of their buddies. So, you know, if Joe isn't back, it's I'll ask Steve and say, Steve, where's Joe? He's in your buddy group. And uh, and that way I don't have to worry about everyone. I kind of disseminate some of the responsibility out. Let me just go back to retrieves. You said you had a retrieve system. So do you actually have drivers? Yeah. You know, how, how does that work with kind of organizing them or paying their gas or whatever? So, um... So the way I do it, so this this is now going to be the the money side of things. So mm-hmm. I charge between thirty to forty dollars a day for each task. Some of that money goes to paying drivers, and I pay my drivers a hundred dollars a day to drive and pick up people, and they will drive vehicles that are owned by pilots. So the pilots will bring their vehicles, they get free entry and gas money covered and other bits and pieces. So that 40 bucks a day, basically 30 to 40 bucks a day, essentially gets split between the guys bringing the vehicles in, the drivers, gas money, and then a little cut that I take at the end. So with with respect to the retrieve drivers, they get paid 100 bucks a day to pick up pilots, and I I budget on 
10 pilots per driver. And they're usually familiar with the terrain and where we fly, uh, and so they become really efficient ways of picking up pilots. Flying in the US, we sometimes fly in some fairly remote areas where there's it's harder to hitch. So having a driver means that pilots prepared to come out and fly further than they would do on their own, knowing that there is a retrieval system in play. Yeah, definitely. It makes all the difference psychologically, I think, knowing that it doesn't matter where you land, somebody's going to come and get you. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, are the, are the drivers often friends and family of, of the pilots? or? Well, it's, it's actually a mixed bag. Sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're family, sometimes they know someone who knows someone, and then sometimes they're just local, local people in the village that, uh, that we fly from. Word gets around that I'm bringing a ton of pilots in and I'm looking for drivers, and, and quite often we use one of those. And that works okay. It's good that you get a small cut because that'll f- cover your fees for you know the website yeah, I, maintenance, hosting, your time for actually getting there and, and everything that you do for this. Yeah, I pocket It'll ten, be small compensation, I imagine. I pocket 10 bucks a head per task. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a huge amount, but it's some reward that essentially covers all of my expenses, and that's nice. And it's always very interesting. I remember when I first started doing the league, I was charging five bucks a head, and then when I went to ten bucks, there were lots of people who were really unhappy, and that caused a lot of grief for me. And then I eventually realized that, you know, if ten bucks is too much, then they won't come, and that's fine. Those who feel that that 10 bucks is of value, they'll come, and those are the pilots that I want. So so there's a level of kind of Darwinism in play, of putting something on, and if it's too expensive, pilots won't turn up, and that's that's okay. But those who feel that you're bringing value, and they're, they're giving, giving, you're giving pilots a safe opportunity to fly across country, and they see that value, those are the ones that you want. Yeah, but I mean... If you're going to fly cross country somewhere, and you end up flying, you, prob- you know, possibly your personal best, and then you end up somewhere, you know, in the middle of nowhere, most people would gladly pay twenty bucks to be retrieved. You know, so if they don't see the value just in the retrieval, never mind the task setting, the met knowledge, the fact that you're being monitored for safety and stuff. I mean, that's just crazy. But that's not. So I know sometimes when I've landed out. And uh, and I've been hitching for a couple of hours. I actually start to put, I hold 20 bucks in my hand, hoping someone will stop and pick me up. And even then, that doesn't always work. To have that organized beforehand, people think that it's easy to hitch. And so they, they don't need to worry about that, that retrieve drive or whatever. Yeah, but pilots and money. Let's not even go there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get back to the body group then. I mean, what's your system for putting people into body groups? Typically, what I do is in the pilot briefing, I'll ask the pilots to organize themselves into buddy groups of um, not more than six and make sure you exchange contact details of each other. So when you land, you can contact each other and say that you've landed. This year, I've changed it up again and basically told pilots that before they even come out to the weekend, they must have set up their buddy groups and... They must set up their spot or their Delorme system so that their landing message goes to their buddies as well. So part of this is that, you know, if someone's landed and we've had people who land and and they have a bit of an epic walk 
you know, three to six hour, maybe even longer walk out. As long as I know and their buddies know that they're safe and they're moving, it's all good. And I don't really need to worry about things too much if their buddies know where they are and that they're walking and moving. So it's all part of disseminating some of the safety to other pilots. And so presumably the ones, the people who haven't been able to get into a group, you just put them into groups. You know what? I don't think I've ever had anyone who's not joined themselves into a buddy group. And, and oh, wow. when I ask people to set themselves up into buddy groups, I tell them to set themselves up into buddy groups of either people who they've carpooled with or people who are flying similar gliders or similar similar abilities so you can kind of keep a mental eye or a visual eye on your buddies just to keep track of them that's a really good idea actually if you've got all the ends in one group and all the bs in another you know because they might all be flying in similar gaggles if you see what i mean that's yeah. a really good idea yeah exactly what's sort of the average task length so what kind of tasks do you set is it all open distance or do you actually do no, goal the, flights or what? So one of the aims of the league is to get people to learn to fly cross-country. To fly cross-country, dare I say, by following other people. And by following other people, it now means flying a task. So it'll be from you know point A to B to C to D. That has multiple advantages in that you keep pilots together. Uh, you keep pilots not flying too far off course, which makes it difficult to do retrieves. All the tasks are race to goal. Depending upon the day, they might be... I mean, my nominal distance is 25 kilometres, so I try and set, even on the really scratchy, exceedingly weak days, I'll try and set a 30k task. And then when we go to the really big sites, so we've got a couple of sites that we go to. One of them is whale back, just on the border between California and Oregon. And I'll typically set tasks of 80 to 120 Ks on that. And then when we go to the Owens, if it's a really big day in the Owens Valley, I think I've set, uh, I've set 120 K tasks in the Owens. And it really just depends upon the, the day quality, the pilot quality as well. If I know that the pilot quality isn't so strong, then I'll set a more modest task. So it really just depends upon pilot quality, um, site and day quality. These aren't small tasks. I mean, these are big cross-country flights for most people. What's your entry criteria? The entry criteria that I have is that pilots must be happy thermaling with other pilots in close quarters and that they can find a place to land safely on their own without instruction. Most of the sites have site requirements of being P3 and above, so that's P3 and P4. If ever I get a pilot who's P2, I basically tell them that they can't come. When I have a P3 pilot, usually I've got a feel on, on who these guys are or I'll ask around and find out if there's anything I need to worry about this particular pilot. I'm changing things again for this year because I realise that when I'm setting 100km tasks, the guys who've just got their P3, so this would probably be club pilot rating in the UK, the last thing they want to be doing is flying a 100k task and they're completely intimidated by this. So I'm setting up a second league called Sprint League where the tasks are going to be significantly more modest and they're going to be 20, 30, maybe even much as 40 kilometres and a little bit more fishbowly, just trying to get pilots with the experience of flying task and flying together and working together as a team to get round and really giving them an idea of what these league meets and competitions are about so they can kind of graduate onto the bigger tasks eventually 
but still get that level of accomplishment flying the more modest task. My sprint league, the rule for it is pilots must be flying an ENA or an ENB glider. If you're flying an ENC, you have to be in the main league. And so part of this is to keep pilots together without guys coming in with ENDs and just, you know, flying a 20, 25 or whatever kilometer task in under an hour and devaluing the day for everyone else. Talking of devaluing the day, what scoring system do you use? I am using GAP 2011. Okay. And I'm using FS. I'd love for there to be a system where I can set a task and pilots can automatically submit their tracks into the competition scoring system and see what distances they've got and maybe provisional scores as everyone starts to submit their tracks in. But right now it doesn't work like that. They email their tracks over to me and then I score them on FS and publish results using um, the competition version of Leonardo. What's the big advantage of your competition format over other bigger comps? The whole thing about being agile against much larger competitions, which are fixed, and if the weather becomes crappy, that's it. You've lost, you've lost that whole week. And just being able to move things quickly without, without having too much infrastructure in place. And, and some of this is really about mindset for what pilots expect. And to change that mindset to saying, well, it's going to be the first weekend in the month, and if that's no good, we'll move to the second weekend in the month. So then pilots have got a reasonable idea of, of what weekends they want to block out to be able to participate in these events. If they really want to be flying in, in these mini competitions or leagues and, and fly with their buddies. But, I mean, you've built in the fact that people don't have to come to every single task in order to have a reasonably good chance of doing well. I mean, obviously, if you can go to all 18, if we, if we go back to the theoretical example of that you have 18 tasks, obviously, if you go to all 18, you've got a better chance of winning overall, but you don't have to go. And I think that just allows people not to think, oh, God, if you know, I can't, I'm working this Saturday, I can't possibly, damn, you know, I might as well not bother. Yeah, and, I, and it's, all, it's all part of not ramping this up to be a full-blown big boys competition, and to make it fun and flexible, and to give everyone almost all abilities to win. So another important thing about the league thing that I run is that I have three different categories of trophies, or winners. Those flying END gliders, those flying ENC gliders, and those flying ENA and ENB. And in doing so, it means that you're not competing against the big boys if you're flying an ENC glider. So you're competing at your own level with your own peers. And if you choose not to be able to make one weekend for whatever, you're not going to be significantly penalised. You are to a degree because maybe it was a good weekend and you could have got more points, but you've still got a reasonable chance of doing well with, with the ability to throw out tasks. Tell me then how difficult it is to, to run this series. So I've been running the, the Northern California Cross Country League for 10 years, and it's not particularly difficult to run the league. Part of it is that pilots know uh, how much they need to be doing on their own and how much I'm going to be doing for them. The stuff that I have to do beforehand is all make sure I've got drivers and vehicles coming out and making sure there's adequate accommodation if people want to stay in some of the fancy accommodation that's available. So that's kind of just giving the... Uh, the results a bit of a heads up. 
and then beyond that, and that that takes maybe a couple of hours a, a weekend, and then during the day, probably half an hour to an hour beforehand, checking weather and making sure everything is set, and then maybe half an hour to an hour after the task, when uh, I'm waiting for pilots to check back in, or and I, I'm chasing some of those up, and then at the end of the weekend, sort of Monday, Tuesday probably a couple of hours at most scoring the tasks so in all told you know before and after is probably four hours and that's not a huge sink of time and i keep keep trying to reduce the amount of time i spend in preparation or in scoring by transferring a lot of the tasks onto pilots so for example i get pilots to download their own tracks and email it across to me so i don't have to physically download on the weekends well i mean if i look at at the scoring room of most competitions, you know, the amount of kit that they have to bring in order to be able to download the multitude of GPSs that there are and the amount of expertise that they have to develop in order to be able to help people with their GPSs, where actually, you know, everybody should know their own GPS and if, if they can all download their track logs like they do every other weekend of the year, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, actually, that you don't do it your way. Uh, yeah, I'm always amazed that school rooms still exist. It's actually one of the things that I'm hoping that, that we're going to change at the rat race, which is one of the big competitions in the U.S. where there's nearly 200 pilots, is trying to get pilots to submit track logs um, via email. So the scoring doesn't become a complete zoo, and the scorers can just get on and deal with tracks that may, may be problematic apart from rather than just dealing with every single track. And we've got so many mechanisms for for recording tracks from smartphones to fancy GPSs that... I don't really understand why we should be sitting in line for a score room. And that, what that does is that means that the organiser or the scorer doesn't have to spend so much time doing these tasks of scoring. They can essentially be transferred off to the pilots themselves. Presumably you've got your own travelling accommodation. You've got a, some kind of camper van or something. I've got a tent. That's all I need. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I've got a tent and a car, and mm-hmm. uh, and the laptop. Well, I can usually, I can usually get away with about three hours on the crappy battery on my laptop, and that's all I really need for the weekend. And beyond that, I don't need much else. I don't need a fancy scoring room with lots of gizmos and lots of stuff. And, and I, I make sure I come out to the weekend with all the with all the check in sheets for all the pilots ready. I'll have maybe a dozen copies of that, and I also have. Uh, a printout sheet of all pilot details. So should there be any incident, I can quickly go to that and pull out any any info that I need to support whatever incidents happened. It just goes to show that you really don't need a huge infrastructure. Yeah, I think you're right. You don't really need a big infrastructure. You know, there's, there's two things with this. When you pilot, number of pilots increase such as you have at, at large competitions, the expectation is that you've got someone providing you lunches on your way up to launch, you've got drivers picking you up within five to ten minutes of you landing. Uh, and Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just, yeah. How can anybody expect and, that? <laughs> and you've got a large and dedicated infrastructure for dealing with incidents. With the league that I do, my infrastructure for dealing with incidents is actually minimal. It's all about pilots taking that responsibility on themselves, keeping an eye on your buddy 
So if you see your buddy go down, you're going to go down or you're going to drag some other pilots with you to help on dealing with a pilot who's uh, not in a good shape, um, as opposed to relying on a ground crew whose sole job is to deal with incidents. And this goes back to pilot expectation. You know, pilot expectation is is about if you see your, your buddy go down, you're going to be one of those people who go down and help him and figure out what you can do before, you know, emergency services turn up. And that's that's a big distinction between cheap, dynamic competitions like the ones that I do and the really big ones. Paying a lot of money and having great expectations doesn't guarantee that it's actually going to work for you. <laughs> There's been plenty of examples of of big competitions where people have been lost in the sense of you know being lost in the wilderness and not being found for some days, and other places where people have been injured and they haven't been rescued by the organisation but rescued by local people and things like that. So and yeah, I mean, I think I think the the two things you know, there's no, I don't think there's a guaranteed correlation between what you spend and what your expectations are and what actually is delivered. I mean, you bring up some very interesting points there. I mean, there was an incident in the U.S. a couple of years ago at a big comp with a pilot being out for a couple of days. And um, and this is all about responsibility, using some of the latest equipment you can get, such as satellite trackers. So pilots can, all your buddy pilots can see where you are. And that's a huge safety thing. And it's it's part of pilots themselves taking on responsibility of looking after their well-being and their buddies, as opposed to using infrastructure to do that. Yeah, but I like the fact that you're making sports mandatory. Yeah. You know, but it but it's the pilot's equipment. You know, rather than you saying, right, I will provide you with live trackers, and then the pilot's expecting that they work. If you say, right, it's your equipment. I mean, in the same way as you don't competitions these days don't provide pilots with radios. People bring their own radios and they take responsibility for the upkeep and maintenance of that equipment because they know that it's going to help them to stay safe. So I think it's it's crazy not to ask them to bring a spot or some other satellite tracking device. Exactly, exactly. And and the neat thing is that you know you can set all this stuff up weeks in advance of any event, um, provided all the information is out there. And quite often when you go to some of these really big competitions and they they ask for spot. They'll only tell you on the day what the contact numbers are or the email addresses or whatever to set up for your spot page. And that's always way too late. So I always think that if you can get people, get people the info early and let them set it up themselves so they don't... Um, there was one competition I went to, one of the ones I organised, where we were trying to make spot mandatory, but it was one of the very early days. And the resort that we were staying at Within 20 minutes of getting there, we saturated their bandwidth so no one could set up their spot devices. So it's all about trying to get everyone set up before they come out so there's no issues on the day itself. I mean, I think there's two advantages in all this, you know, getting people to to do all this stuff in advance. It, a, it helps kind of give them a buzz about the competition and, you know, they're already working towards it and, you know, they're getting excited about it and, and it's a bit like packing your glider to go. You know, getting all this stuff in advance helps you to, like, motivate yourself for the competition. But it also significantly reduces the stress. 
when you arrive there and you've got all these things to do and you know and it's bad enough having to like charge your batteries and stuff without doing all these other things so i think it's a really you know good idea to do all these things in advance yeah so another example of that is pilot registration i have pilot registration online and it feeds into a google doc and that google doc i can access anywhere so if, if i have an incident and i'm not with my sheets of paper with all the pilot info on I, I can do it. It also means that pilots don't have to sit around for half an hour or an hour filling out ridiculous pieces of paper when all this stuff really should be electronic and could be done weeks, months in advance. Okay, is there, is there any kind of um, checking then that people have actually downloaded the waypoints properly? Because I have a single format of waypoints and I, I tell people to use GPS dump to upload the waypoints. The only issue that could happen, and it's happened occasionally, is pilots have forgotten to upload their waypoint file or it didn't upload properly for whatever reason, and that's very rare. And in those cases, it's tough. You know, you're going to have to manually enter in the waypoints and hope you don't screw up when you enter those coordinates. I mean, that goes back to pilot responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. You know, talk me through then some of the barriers that you face with organising these competitions? I don't feel that these are barriers that I face, but it's my guess is that there are barriers, because I've tried to encourage more leagues around the US and been particularly unsuccessful with it. I think some of the barriers that people have is the scoring. They're intimidated by using FS, for example, to score competitions. And even when I've offered remote scoring for people, it still isn't happening. Competition scoring, it's remarkably easy using FS, and there's some great wikis on that uh, through the FS website. So FS is the scoring software that's been developed by the FAI for hang gliding and paragliding. So that's, that's one barrier. Another one is, my guess, is responsibility. I think a lot of people don't want responsibility for a big competition. And it doesn't have to be very big. It can be, you know, a dozen of your buddies going saying, hey, let's try and, I don't know, fly 50K and have goal at that pub, you know, wherever that is. But I think it's responsibility for other pilots in the air. I think there's, there's a huge barrier with that. Another thing that I think might well be a barrier and certainly is in the US is liability. And what I do is I get pilots to fill out a waiver that essentially indemnifies me against any incident that happens. But beyond that, I, I really don't understand why there aren't more fun, low-key leagues with pilots meeting and, you know, having a good fly, doing big stuff or little stuff, um, and just keeping pilots together and flying together. You organise these competitions not just to further people's skills and their ability to fly competitions and fly cross-country, but you also use it as a community-building tool amongst the paragliding community in your area. Can you tell me a bit more about that? One of the things that I've found is there'll be pilots who'll call each other and say, hey, let's go for a fly, and, and they'll go off in their small groups. And while that's great, it really doesn't develop a much larger level of camaraderie amongst much larger groups of pilots that you can get by having larger groups coming together and flying together. One of the things that some pilots have told me is that they hadn't started coming out to the league that I've been running, they would have probably dropped out of flying a lot earlier. And in 
flying with the league, they meet the same buddies that they have, and they fly together, and it gives them focus and direction and skill improvement. One of the things that's that's pretty interesting in the US is that uh, there's four ratings, P1, P2, P3, and P4. And the the hard learning is done on the P1 and P2. And then it just becomes, from what I understand, getting your P3 and P4, there's a lot less formal learning from an instructor that goes on. And in doing so, pilots have a hard time moving from that P2, P3 to P4. So this provides another mechanism of learning and keeping pilots engaged in a community. Because quite often when they've got their P2, they'll probably stick with it for six months to a year. And then I've heard pilots dropping out because they don't have a a social group or an infrastructure of pilots who they're going to hang out with and fly together. How did you you go about getting people involved? I mean, is it really popular and everybody, like it's a status thing and and people are desperate to be allowed in? or, Or did you struggle or do you struggle to get people involved? Oh, I think it was two or three years into into me doing the league. There were, I remember there was one very memorable task where there were three pilots, <laughs> and uh, and I think that was the low point in terms of numbers. And then it's it's continued to grow. And so for for pilots wanting to come out to the league, I basically say come on out. And there's usually lots of interest at the beginning of the season, and it and then it wanes. Anyone can come along. And, and I think that's part of the fun for it, is to reduce the barriers for entry so it becomes open to everyone and anyone. And they can have fun at whatever level they want, whether it's racing to goal, whether it's flying with their buddies, or whether it's just flying further than they would, they've done on their own. I have to say, it sounds fabulous, you know, and I, I really wish there was a set of competitions like this in every country and in every area. It just sounds brilliant. <laughs> Well, this is this is one of the things that you know I'd love to see is lots of these league meets everywhere around the world, and pilots can you know international pilots travelling can say can see oh there's there's a league meet in the in the Peak District this weekend I'm going to go to that and meet up with new pilots and fly with them and and have these wonderful experiences uh, and if the weather's bad they just get pushed back a weekend or whatever just become very dynamic that really just opens up that whole kind of team flying or flying with friends or meeting new friends um, so much easier without the the issues that you get with the much larger competitions of uh, and the formal the formalness that they have yeah i'd love to see more like this thanks so much jug if you enjoy our podcasts webcasts and articles on the paraglider please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.